Welcome to Hunters and Unicorns, the pre-sales edition of the 33 CXOs. Today, we welcome Mike Lupiani. Mike is the Director of Enterprise Sales Engineering for North America at Sumo Logic and has been integral to two successful IPOs and the BMC acquisition of Blade Logic. Discover the mindset required to thrive and grow in a senior leadership role within some of the most demanding technology companies in the world. This is his playbook. edition of the 33 CXOs, we discover the crucial role that the pre-sales organization played in what is regarded as the greatest success story in the history of software sales. When John McMahon reunited the team at Blade Logic, he had a clear vision to create a sales and pre-sales organization that was in absolute unison. The symbiotic and almost telepathic sales rhythm is the benchmark for best practice. The outcome is not only execution excellence, but a shift to a value mindset which transcends any shift in technology. The pre-sales team now take executive positions at some of the fastest, most disruptive technology companies in the world. What we discover is that John McMahon's vision has not only changed how we sell, it's changed what we sell. Welcome to Hunters and Unicorns, the pre-sales edition of the 33 CXOs. I'm Simon Kutis and I'm joined by my co-host Patrick Harrison. Amazing to be here. And it's an honor to be joined today by Mike Lupiani. Mike, welcome. Thank you guys for having me. So Mike, currently Director of Enterprise Sales Engineering at Sumo Logic. Uh, and an original member of the Blade Logic or the, the very revered Blade Logic pre-sales team, Mike, tell us a little bit about where your passion for technology stems from. Yeah, so I actually grew up in a computer store. My uh, grandpa owned a, a small chain in upstate New York where I grew up, uh, Roslyn Electronics, I think it was called. Um, so I grew up around just PCs, software, people using computers to, to solve their problems. Um, after that got kind of taken out by the big box computer stores uh, in the 90s, I ended up uh, working for my uncle's computer store doing like computer repairs, I don't know, probably at age 12 or so. Um, so it really got into kind of the, the guts of how to make computers do whatever you needed them to do very early. And, uh, you know, obviously very grateful for that opportunity to be around that stuff and, and start there. But I knew I liked it. Um, I was good at it. It was uh, great being able to fix my teacher's computer problems since it was their first computer back then in uh, <laughs> yeah. whatever that was. Fair to say a, a passion for technology runs in the family then. I would absolutely agree with that. Sure, fantastic. And were you actually kind of um, taking computers apart and putting them back together or was it that kind of level of depth? 
Yeah, other than the commercial they had me in when I was five, uh, I wasn't really on the sales floor so much as <laughs> back office, uh, you know, hanging out. Um, it was more of where I was being babysat. And I just started picking stuff up and they let me run with it when uh, what I could. Yeah. No POCs or, uh, or RFIs at that point, though. No, no, I don't think I ended up having to do on-site service uh, for a law firm until I was like 16. <laughs> so did you know that that was how you wanted to go and kind of build your career? You know, did you know straight away that technology was where you wanted to earn your trade? I, did, I absolutely did. Um, I knew before going into college that it, wanted, it was, had to be something around computers. I didn't know quite what. So when I was in high school, I actually took an intro to computer science course at one of the local universities just because high school at the time wasn't really equipped for some of that stuff. Um, and I realized that like 3 a.m. sitting in the dark in my basement doing something in C or assembly, that that was not the kind of technology work I wanted to do for the rest <laughs> of my life. I didn't want to be a coder. Um, I kind of figured out back then that that job could be done from any place potentially. And I really, I, I valued the human interaction aspects more than just sitting there in a room coding. Um, not that that's all it is, obviously. Uh, and I need all of the people that write the code today to keep doing so. But <laughs> I, uh, I can't do that as the largest part of my job. And then off to, off to college, um, you went to RPI, which was obviously the, uh, an, important, an important part of your development. Yeah, it was a critical part of really how I've gotten my career that I'll, I'll get to in a minute, moment. Um, but from a education perspective, they were one of the first universities offering a degree in information technology. So it wasn't just computer science. It wasn't computer systems engineering. It wasn't just management, MIS. It was really a, a large mix of both the computer science fundamentals as well as really all the business fundamentals. So it was almost a, a half comp sci, half management degree, which really spoke to me, uh, again, even back then, as the mix of my personality, right? It wasn't just going to be a programmer. It wasn't just going to be something looking at spreadsheets and doing uh, accounting things, but that mix of attaching the technology to the business, um, it, it just worked for me. Mm. And then from there, obviously, you, you, you went on to IBM um, as a senior consultant straight out of college. So you, went, you, went, you became a consultant straight into IBM? I did. Uh, I don't think I started as a senior, but got there uh, relatively quickly after getting in. But from a recruiting perspective, IBM actually pulled a, a lot of people from RPI. So as a relatively small college, um, I think when I was got to IBM and 2004 or so, 1% of IBM went to RPI, which wow. for a college that only graduates 15,000 kids a year or however many it was, um, compared to the large state schools and things like that, that they also recruit heavily from was pretty impressive to see. Wow. Yeah. Why was IBM a good place for you to kind of go and develop and learn? So it, it gave me a very good picture of kind of how large business operates. Um, you know, as a kid straight out of college, I had never dealt with customers. I, I didn't know how to go out to dinner with people, right? <laughs> and in a professional setting, uh, IBM actually did a really good job of taking a bunch of kids, 
effectively throwing them into a dorm for a few weeks to teach them how to be a grown-up uh, at meetings and things. <laughs> that uh, it's just not stuff you can pick up in college. You have to have somebody really kind of show you some of uh, those aspects, right? Uh, understanding some of the simple stuff, like after you have how many drinks with a customer, when do you not go back to the office? Uh, seems like a silly rule, but it, it was in there in the, the education. Um, but stuff like that from a, just taking a, a raw, uh, again, a, a bunch of kids at the time and really walking through how we solve customer problems, actually learned uh, effectively about the moose principle. And I may be misremembering this one, but understanding the major obstacle overlooked by substantially everyone <laughs> started with some premise of there's a dead moose on the table that nobody talks about the client. It's their, their table, their moose presumptively. Um, you don't want to talk about it, but if you don't bring up the problem that the customer's having and really talk about that, dead moose on the table, you're never going to solve their problem. The fact that there's a moose on the table. Um, it seems like a silly illustration. It was even like a little comic strip, but that kind of stuck with me that somebody has to bring up the thing that isn't right mm. if you want to fix it. And um, for our viewers, maybe um, in consultancy positions at the moment, I know obviously uh, it's, a, it's a fairly broad term within the world of technology. Were you quite hands-on in that role or was it, were the pre-sales elements to it or was it, was it quite different to, to your transition into pre-sales? It was quite different. Uh, I think the, the one thing that at the end of the day didn't work out so well for me at IBM was the place that they put me from a, what I was doing job responsibility perspective. Mm -hmm. So they had me doing supply chain operations and strategy consulting, which was a, a little bit too far away from the, the tech for me. Um, I got to do a lot of tech things as part of that, but it was still, it was adjacent to what I really wanted to do. Um, and frequently when there was a technology solution to a problem, it wasn't my role or capability to, to execute on that. Mm -hmm. So that was uh, one of the reasons that when the opportunity came to make a change, I did. Did you know what you wanted to do? No. Uh, I had no idea that sales engineering was a thing at this point in my life. Um, I uh, actually got a call from, I think, somebody else that, uh, that you've spoken with or will be, Sahir Azam, uh, who's one of my fraternity brothers from college. And he had called me a couple times, said, you, you got to get out of IBM. Um, we're doing some cool stuff over here. It's a good team. It's a good product. You'd love it. Just come take a look at it. Uh, and I, I kind of blew him off for a while because I'd never heard of this company. Mm -hmm. um, didn't know what a sales engineer was <laughs> yet. And uh, obviously, I, in hindsight, wish I had taken one of those first calls and dug in deeper much earlier than I ended up joining the org. Because uh, unfortunately, while you mentioned me as one of the original, I, I don't consider myself one of the original Blade Logic sales engineering team. There was so much of a crew built by the time I got there that was operating as a, a well-oiled machine that I kind of dropped into and learned from that. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't consider myself that original side, uh, although I was there before we went public and, and got acquired. Mm. So it, it's an interesting point, Mike, around, um, you know, uh, moving into sales engineering initially you didn't know what that was. You 
you, you didn't consider it at the time. Uh, and also obviously there's the startup nature of Blade Logic as well. Um, did the term sales engineer make you think this is too commercial, too far away from the tech or what were your initial reservations? I was scared of sales a little bit, I think, um, just as a, a construct. I think that's something that a lot of technical people are afraid of that, that word at the beginning of sales engineer. Yeah. Um, there's so many other phrases that would be a better description uh, for the job from uh, making it fit into their, into their brains to, to get them started on it. Problem solver, um, quick thinker, somebody execute, uh, all sorts of things that define what sales engineers do all day. Yep. That uh, sales is an absolutely critical aspect of it, right? We have to, to make the company successful, but that's an end result of doing all of the things that sales engineers do. It's not the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I guess you must have that conversation on the other side of the fence quite a lot nowadays. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. yeah I, um, I've actually gone and, and talked to a few different groups of students that, uh, you know, they're looking for what they want to do and people should know that sales engineering is a thing that lets people use some of their best qualities, right? Their passion for technology, their ability to, to interact with people and solve problems. Uh, again, um, it's a good combination of things for people that have that right mindset for it and the right personality to execute on it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, fantastic. So talk us through your move into Blade Logic. then. Obviously, it was pre-acquisition. Um, had Sahir been in the business long? He'd been there for at least a year by the time I got there. Mm. Uh, he had been absolutely crushing it. So I, I think when they brought him in, he might have been uh, slightly an experiment of bringing in a younger uh, guy to the team that really hadn't done a massive amount of, of things career-wise yet and really just taking somebody that is a, uh, you know, Blob being ready to be molded and make them into the best sales engineer that we can. And I think it, it worked so well for him, which I'm grateful that it did for him that they, you know, asked him, do you know anybody else like you? <laughs> so, um, you know, again, extremely grateful to have been given that opportunity and, and had a, a good friend that could tell me what this was and, and get me into it um, mm -hmm. from that perspective. And how was that initial transition for you? So did it feel natural, unnatural for you at the beginning? How long did it take for you to, to really find your stride? Let's see. That's a good question. The work part of it felt natural. Uh, the ability to, I think I went on a POC my first or second week, right? That's how training and onboarding was at blade logic it was okay you work here now and now you're going to start doing work <laughs> uh, obviously there was new hire training and stuff that came a couple weeks after that at the and learning more of the sales things but it was immediately shadowing um going on demos which at the time at blade logic were six or seven demos a day or if you were traveling maybe only two or three demos a day possibly in different cities um which was interesting in an entirely on-site um 
meeting format at the time to start your day off with a meeting in Boston, do one in New York and end up with a dinner in Toronto um, that I don't think many people are doing that level of velocity now <laughs> of in-person critical meetings. Um, but it was a, a good way to, to get going. Um, and again, uh, immediately into POC demo training, uh, we had a, a good sense of quality control around making sure that those demos were right and a, a big review process before anybody ever got in the field. So I remember being afraid of whether uh, Tim Fessenden would approve my, my demo or not uh, before I could go out and actually give it to a customer. How intense was that training? It was, from a, a technical perspective, very much, again, shadow-based. So it was really just a, a massive amount of things that people picked it up. I wouldn't say that it was a, a regimented training program mm -hmm. uh, of, you know, you come in, you do these things for this week, these things for this week, and then four weeks in, you are done. Um, it was very much, you're going to go do all of the things that we need to do. You're going to learn it. And then ultimately let's review the, the demonstration with uh, my hiring manager at the time was Damon Miller. Um, so again, great opportunity to, to really learn everything and, and working with a big group, a large team of people that all cared about making it successful was a, a big aspect of that. And, and was the training more weighted towards kind of the sales side of, of, of kind of sales engineering or was there an emphasis on technology? Was it customer focus in terms of the themes that were covered in a more academic way? Very technology to start. Um, again, I, I came in with more of the business aspect, having done three years at IBM and understanding some of those aspects of customer interaction, um, you know, putting numbers to things that my stuff was more around some of the tech side to really get that going. Um, I think we, I think it was done a little bit differently depending on what that person needed when they were coming on board, but it was definitely more tech. I think at, at Blade Logic, we heavily relied on having um, you know sales reps that they could do their entire job if you will um, we could have sent in people that all they had to do was do the demo and do the tech part it was not critical at least not at the early stages there that value was necessarily something that we were discussing or or cranking out we were just there to do our part on the, the tech side and um, <clears throat> obviously having spoken to a few members now of the founding team as well. Um, I, I don't believe a lot of people came into the business with prior pre-sales experience. It was more um, strong technical individuals. But was that the, the nature of the product or the industry at the time? What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, that product touched so many different pieces of technology mm. in so many different ways. Um, uh, it had to do whatever a server could do for every operating system that existed for every size of customer and it had to do it well because everything there that it was doing was mission critical. So it, um, it touched so much that we really needed those tech chops. Uh, again, from my understanding later, um, I didn't necessarily understand what aspect of me made me a good fit on my way in. Just that after having kind of gone through the review with, uh, with Damon and Sahir that they thought I'd be it, but, uh, really getting that combination of technology, um, 
technical learning abilities, right? The ability to learn new stuff. There's nobody that knew all of those things already. You had to have somebody that was a, an open kind of moldable, uh, again, object there of, of learning all that stuff. But then the right personality is obviously critical. Um, not everybody that is good at doing technology makes a good sales engineer. Um, because uh, again, the, the people interaction is such a large aspect of what we are doing. Mm. Yeah. So, so, so when you joined, obviously, um, it was kind of the year leading up to the IPO. Um, so the team was pretty much in kind of full rhythm. Uh, when we've spoken previously, you said it was, you know, pure success at that time. Just tell us about your um, early memories of being part of that team. Yeah. Um, I think I was there about a, a month before the IPO. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, so it, uh, it happened very quickly after I got there. <laughs> um, but from a, a success perspective, came in, uh, again, was there barely, uh, barely a month, I think, if my mental calendar is working right, um, of getting our name out there from going public, going IPO, uh, again, being effectively in front of customers. We had brand recognition already. Uh, that wasn't something that I was building up at the time. Not everybody, obviously, had heard of us, but um, it was a, a big enough thing that we didn't have to explain to everybody who we were, um, at least not every time. From a success perspective, again, walking into POCs that had already been spun up, uh, learning about kind of the discovery process wasn't something that happened for me early there. Um, sales engineers weren't a big part of that early discovery at Blade Logic. Uh, again, it was really uh, on the reps to, to get things going very early in that cycle and by the time it got to a sales engineer, it was a pretty well-qualified possible opportunity. Um, they had weeded out the bad fits already. So it was really right into something that was probably real. Um, and it, we were selling something that it had a easy ROI automation. Uh, there's some benefits of selling an automation solution that make it very uh, compatible with a purchasing motion. <laughs> mm. So obviously John McMahon at that moment was at the helm, um, you know, full rhythm. What were your experiences of him and how influential he was at the kind of operating rhythm across that entire kind of sales go to market and actually the wider functions within, within blade logic. Yeah, uh, definitely intensity. He knew everything that was going on everywhere all the time. Uh, and every person that was involved in, in everything that was going on, uh, as a, I'm sure you've heard from some others. Uh, I still remember, and it was probably two weeks in before I got to do my new training or new hire class for all of sales. Uh, one of the things that I, I haven't seen since then, there was a, a pretest on your way into new hire training. Um, the theory was that if you failed the pretest, worst case scenario, you were going home and no longer working here. Uh, best case, there was going to be a discussion with your manager about why you didn't spend the time in the last two weeks that you worked here to learn not a massive amount of information, but really take the take your own uh, initiative to, to learn this stuff. And it was on hiring managers. I, I understood that at the time to make sure that the people they brought on were capable of learning that stuff and then drilling it into them in that first part of uh, what our core differentiation 
core differentiators were light company history. Um, I know that it's a little bit off topic there, but uh, from a intensity perspective, I remember sitting there in that, that new hire class. And I don't know if I looked down at my phone on the table or something for a moment or uh, looked at my notes in, in my notebook, but John had, had just gone through some part of our, our core differentiation, was looking around just for consensus and saw me again, kind of looking away slightly um, and called me out for it in the middle of day one. I think I'd talked to him maybe once prior to that, uh, if I had even met him by then. Um, and I, I just remember, Mike, you with me? If you're not with me, you're against me. Um, so, you know, good way to, to get it going. Um, paid much better attention for the rest of that couple of days of training. <laughs> and it's the, interesting. Sorry, the, the, um, the atmosphere within the pre-sales team, was it, did, did it just, was it all completely symbiotic between sales and pre-sales from culture through to, um, you know, the medic piece or, or was there two kind of separate organizations at that point when you joined? Hmm. It definitely wasn't just one big cohesive org. Um, we were absolutely part of the sales org and there was no question about that. Hmm. But within kind of the regional team, obviously there was the sales engineers and, and the sales reps. And for the most part, um, you know, we did everything together. All, there was no success that was for one part of the team. Success was everybody's. Uh, the work was everybody's. Uh, the more I'm thinking about it, it was actually a pretty good single team. Um, <laughs> but we, you know, from a, an education perspective, from a roles and responsibilities perspective, that's where it separated, that we were one team, but people had their lane of what they were doing, what their responsibility to make successful was, uh, or to, to make sure it got done, that that was the thing, I think, that threw my brain into the the separate teams. But really, at the core, it was one solid object right it was one qbr with the entire team there so I, I still keep in touch with many of the sales reps that i worked with back then uh, as well as sales engineers so uh, it was very very cohesive um to correct myself sure that's actually one of your playbook elements so it's your job get it done right so just tell us a little bit more about that yeah so one of the things that i definitely learned very early there was there's uh, obviously you can ask for help on things that you can't get done but when it comes down to it there's a, a job that needs to be done to make the poc successful to make the demo work to make the product better whatever that is and if you sit around and wait for somebody else to do it you might not win right um you're, you're not going to get where you need to go if you rely on somebody else for aspects that are within your control, right? There are things that you shouldn't go outside of your, your role to do, at least not frequently. But if a deal's on the line, there, there shouldn't be something within your capability that you don't do just because it's somebody else's job. Um, it's one of the things that I've taken to a, a leadership perspective as I grew into that later of understanding that I, I can't use the excuse that I haven't hired that person to do that job yet, right? If... I don't have somebody to do it. It still needs to get done. And it might need, mean that I end up doing something that is more of a, an IC responsibility, but that's my team's job to get it done. And that was kind of how I got brought up under 
Um, Damon Miller, again, probably the, the best example of that. The number of pieces of product that he practically built instead of waiting for someone to get around to doing it um, or just to get it started, right? It wasn't necessarily that he built it to fit, finish perfect, but showing engineering that this could be executed. Like even a sales engineering manager uh, or director, whatever he was at the time, can make this thing this far. You guys are smarter than us. You can do the rest of it. Um, that aspect helped a lot uh, in kind of setting my vision. Uh, Might have turned me into a little bit of a workaholic, but, um, you know, is what it is. So how, how demanding was it working as part of such a high-performing sales org? I had a little bit of stress going in. Uh, in seeing so many people that were so good at what they were doing that I was worried that I wasn't good enough to be doing it um, or go off on my own and, uh, you know, as the sales engineer on an opportunity instead of the shadow. Um, and again, some of that, uh, obviously, all the, the people that I've mentioned earlier, Sung Park, uh, who was one of my later managers at Blade Logic and BMC. Um, you know, another good example, of just that perfect polished demonstration discussion. That it was it was tough, uh, but it set a high bar to to run towards. Right, we um, when you see enough people that are perfect or seem perfect to you, right? I, I don't even know at the time it was um, a little bit of a, a ways back now, but. Uh, seeing perfection enough. I don't know if, if it just helps you get there because um, you know it's possible and that you know it's not hard. And once you realize that these people that are, are doing that perfect job are just people that practiced and worked hard and got it there, that you can do it too. I think all of those aspects work together to make it something that I got over um, pretty quickly. And ultimately, it, internal feedback from the sales org, from my management team, um, you know, having Carlos uh, after a demo say that was a, an amazing demo, stuff like that really gets, again, especially those early career sales engineers, I am doing this right, right? I can, if I keep putting time in, I can do even better and I'm a part of this team. So uh, I don't know if it's imposter syndrome early yeah. on, uh, but ultimately got there. It's quite natural what you're saying, but are you competitive naturally by nature? I am technically competitive. Uh, I, I don't like people to know more technical things about anything than me, um, <laughs> which uh, is actually an interesting construct as a sales engineer where you there are some personalities from a, a customer or other coworker perspective that are also that way. And somebody is going to need to bend to have a good relationship. Um, mm. And it's better if you learn how to bend than hoping that the customer or somebody else will bend to, uh, to just respect uh, your technical superiority that you may think you have. Mm. Uh, again, being the compatible one in the, the situation helps a lot. Do, do you think that restricted you? At first, initially, was that was that something you you physically felt I have to overcome this, or how aware how aware of it were you? 
No, I, I think I, I saw some good examples of it actually being done the wrong way a couple times um, that I never had it as a problem of myself, right? I never got in a sword fight with a, a prospect over a technology thing that I, I knew they were wrong. And that's some of that comes from, a, again, that I, I think my early working in a computer store with people that didn't necessarily know what the computer did that you can't just call them wrong, right? You can't call their baby ugly. You just have to fix their problem. So I, I think I actually learned a lot about that very, very early in just a professional uh, working environment. Um, and even IBM, right? So I, I definitely am a uh, accumulation of all the stuff and all my experiences over that time. But it wasn't, a, by the time I got there, it wasn't something I had to deal with as a problem. Yeah. It's interesting because actually another element of your playbook is solve the problem. Don't just answer the question. Is, is that where that kind of mindset was started to kind of build from? I think it has to be. Um, I never really thought back that far as to when problem solving became the thing that I'd put on the top of my list of qualities that make me good at what I do now or where I got that problem solving capability. But uh, if I think back to, again, being in that computer store all by myself and needing to fix the customer's problem uh, when one of my uncles wasn't around to, to make that thing go uh, or dealing with them on the phone to, to really figure out what's going on, um, some of that initial problem-solving, troubleshooting, I think that carried through in a business context all the way to my, my software sales that um, again, I think have, have made me successful and relatively good at, at what I do there. And how do you think that has helped you? Yeah. So I have definitely seen from a sales engineering perspective, an easy trap is to answer the customer's question without thinking about it. Mm. It's um, probably the simplest thing. And the thing I work on people that are new to sales engineering the most now that I've recognized that it's, it's such a big aspect and can change the entire direction of a meeting so much. Um, and really kind of goes back to, if you think about getting an RFP, you have to answer an RFP. It's a bunch of technical questions. You only get a yes or a no box. If you put enough no's in the boxes, they're not going to talk to you. Even if you had a better way to do it, it doesn't matter. It was a yes or a no. You chose no. They chose another vendor. Um, if you look at it that way, that that's also how every question they're asking you is. Where if the answer to their question is no, but we actually have a better way to do it. Possibly if you dig a little bit deeper and ask them why they're asking that question, that can make all the difference, right? Why, why do you want something that does this thing that as far as we know, no other product does that, or maybe a bunch of them do, but why would you want to do that? That doesn't necessarily make sense to me. Understanding that deeper problem and then maybe your product does have a solution. It's just not that solution. Sure. And when, in, in a broader context, Mike, um, when you joined Bled Logic and the IPO happened shortly after, was there a sense of how momentous it was or, or how big an impact, um, you know, the, the whole story could have on the industry, in your opinion? I don't think I recognized at the time all of the things that were right 
um, were all of the things that were working together in our favor. Like I knew I was a part of a good thing. Mm. Um, you know, it was great coming in my first quarter as a sales engineer and having the region close its entire annual quota in a single quarter. Um, I mean, that, that was a good way to come into a variable comp plan situation. Uh, so <laughs> I, I knew things were going well. I didn't know how many of the pieces there just were fit together perfectly. Uh, and again, I know that there was some things that happened before I got there. It wasn't always dreams and success all the way along that path, right? Um, there was some rough quarters. There was other things that I, I again, heard about them from others. Um, when I, I asked, hey, is, is it always like this? <laughs> um, so there was a lot of hard work that went into to making that org there that even years later, I think back to some of the stuff that I either wish I had again sometimes or ways that I can help my org get to some of the things there that were perfect that I uh, again uh, wish I could have written all of those things down of how we did everything. But uh, luckily the couple times that I've needed some advice on some things, John McMahon's been very gracious to, <laughs> to answer. <laughs> uh, and I luckily run into him in airports occasionally. Uh, so I can go grab a couple minutes of his time there too. Fantastic. So um, obviously, uh, shortly after the IPO, um, the the company was then uh, delisted, I guess, and, and acquired by BMC. Um, talk, talk us through that from your perspective. Obviously, you, you hadn't been in the organization a long time. You'd been part of this rapidly growing team. And then all of a sudden, you're part of one of the largest software companies in the world. Yeah. So I think this is actually one of the things that IBM very much prepared me for. So I went from a 300,000 person company down to, I think it was 200 and something or 300 when I got to Blade Logic, um, And then ultimately acquired again in the the mid 300s by BMC, which only had 6,000 employees. Um, So in comparison, there was a lot of people that were afraid that were not big company people. Mm. Um, I wasn't afraid of that from that aspect. I, I knew how to follow corporate policies on things. IBM had nothing, if not extra policies. Um, so <laughs> none of that stuff scared me. Um, you know, having some people that uh, I very much respected leave the org somewhat early there, um, you know, wasn't optimal. Just some of the people that are not compatible or don't derive fun out of running something as part of a machine as a cog, but really want to build constantly that um, I, qu- I wasn't quite ready to leave yet. I, I stuck around BMC, probably one of the longest, um, not the longest, but one of the last remaining bastions of, of blade logic. Um, but from a big company perspective, we came in originally, it was a little weird. We had our first kickoff down at, uh, how was it? Nashville, Tennessee um, was our first kickoff when technically we weren't actually owned by BMC till like the third day of sales kickoff. So they kept us separate until that was done. And then we were all part of the big family again. Um, but it was, it was definitely an experience coming in from a place that the company wasn't as large as it was. The whole company was one fifth of the size of the sales org at BMC when mm-hmm. we got there. So that was a little bit of a shock. Mm. Uh, but again, nothing uh, 
I wasn't scared about the org. Yeah. And from a pre-sales perspective, did you transition quite quickly into more of a solution sell than a, um, a, a point product such as blade logic? So we definitely stayed very much within our, um, our pillar. So blade logic became kind of the, the automation, uh, cornerstone, if you will, fitted in with, uh, atrium orchestrator eventually and a network automation tool that, uh, I think at some point they called it blade logic for networks, which I, I pointed out is kind of like the chicken whopper, but um, <laughs> we, we got through pretty well uh, by staying within that channel. Um, part of BMC's sales engineering promotion process that um, again, uh, Sung Park was my manager for a large part of that, that part of my career and gave me a lot around some of the things I could do better around interacting uh, with people, how I execute on that sales process, how I carry myself, things like that. Um, again, as a, a young kid, still somewhat new to the sales game, um, even at that point, or still very new, sorry. Um, got me a few of those promotions uh, along that path, but at the top end there, the principal sales engineer, principal software consultant, they called it. One of those aspects was learning the rest of the product lines. So being able to be an expert in yours, but be able to be conversant and be able to really discuss and talk about the entire BMC portfolio. So um, it was nice being able to do all of that um, and, you know, go through 15 products on a, we call it the death star, um, the wheel of all of the products BMC had in different divisions um, with customers to really figure out where did we fit in? Cause maybe we showed up to the wrong meeting, right? Um, that, that happened at BMC. We showed up, we thought they wanted server patching. They wanted to talk about help desk. We wanted to talk about monitoring. Um, big companies, wrong people, wires get crossed is what it is. Um, but we still had to be able to have the meeting. Uh, so, uh, it was good to, to grow outside of that automation space. Mm. So all of a sudden you're not just finding pain relative to an automation product. You can find pains across an ent the whole enterprise infrastructure. Absolutely. Mm. Um, and understanding kind of how those things fit together. So mm. I, I don't know if I'd call this one luck, but I got to be a part of some of the first proof of concepts where BMC really glued everything they had together as something to look like a product uh, to do large scale cloud automation. Um, again, everything from the automation through a service desk ticket, ticket to request a VM that uh, there was a lot of glue spit and duct tape involved there. Uh, but, one of the best POCs we've ever done, right? 10 people on site for three weeks, making that thing go. And that eventually turned into a product that BMC sold a decent chunk of. Mm. Wow. And for, for our viewers who are maybe um, considering moving to a company with a larger portfolio, having been with startups or anyone going through an acquisition, what are the key skills do you think for someone to transition into that more um, solution driven or, or wider portfolio mindset? Hmm. 
it's a tough one. Um, just to be open to, to learning at a various pace on each part of it, right? So you can't be an expert on every product. Uh, it's just not possible. Mm. So being able to learn the parts that matter, and this is where having a, a good both marketing team and sales enablement team at, at organizations that really have that done well, where they're teaching you just enough as you get going on each of the product lines to know what it does, to know where you need to dig deeper. Um, that's a big aspect of it. Mm. Um, but just be, don't try to become an expert on each thing one by one. Mm. Try to learn about a little bit about each thing so that you understand, at least from a discussion perspective, mm. what all those things do. Yeah. So try and understand from a conceptual level so you can at least talk about the, the whole portfolio. Yep, absolutely. So seven years at BMC. Um, so you, you, you entered as a kind of a consultant, made your way through to principal um, 2012, 2015. Um, and then you decided it was time to move on and join Sumo Logic. What, what, why was that the right time for you to move on? And what, what is it that brought you to join Sumo Logic? Yeah. So let's see. I, one of the reasons I hadn't left earlier, a lot of my coworkers, friends had, had left um, much earlier than that. Um, some of them, I, I think, were at, had done enough uh, in their learning how to be a good sales engineer that they were already at the point that it took me a little bit to get there, right? Of That I, I think I've done everything I can do here. Uh, from a career growth, from a making myself better at, at what I'm doing perspective that I really wanted to go and do something else. So I was actually doing a, a blade logic proof of concept um, for a customer that they needed to provision more Splunk servers. And that was actually something that they were willing to invest in buying blade logic, more licenses of it to provision Splunk to handle their logs better uh, and, be able to pop more servers out there. It did make me ask the question of there has to be a better way than this um, at the time. Uh, coincidentally, I, I started having some discussions with Damon Miller, who uh, actually hired me again at, at Sumo Logic <laughs> um, about, you know, what they were doing. And, you know, the, the stuff didn't really click together until I realized that there were things that needed to be fixed in that space that similarly to what kind of service now did to remedy we had an opportunity to do that to an incumbent vendor on the, the log management side there at sumo logic and so you joined sumo logic how how challenging was the transition technically from what you were doing to the themes that you were having to kind of cover within sumo logic so that one's uh that one was a little easier. Uh, hmm. The interesting things about Sumo, uh, again, it, it very much needed people to be able to be an all-purpose technical solution to problems, right? Whatever the operating system, whatever the application, uh, and that was how it was at Blade Logic. So the ability to go and it, it's a different aspect, right? You're no longer automating, provisioning a server, or fixing a server, or doing a compliance scan. Instead, you're looking at the logs coming out of it but all that knowledge transferred pretty well, which is why um, a large chunk of people from a sales engineering perspective from Blade Logic at, at one point or another did go um, through Sumo or are still there. 
and had been relatively successful in doing so. Um, so that was a that was an easy transition other than adding on some of the cloud stuff that VMC just hadn't really gotten to yet. So that was the biggest learning curve was being able to speak native cloud as opposed to just enterprises that were running some servers in the cloud. Mm. And there was a, there was a large um, contingent of uh, X-Blade Logic pre-sales engineers and sales leadership and leadership throughout Sumo Logic. Did that again make that transition a lot easier from a process perspective and a, from a rhythm, a sales pre-sales rhythm perspective? Very much so. Uh, having uh, all sorts of uh, great examples of, of people um, at, at Sumo that, uh, again, had already been through similar process um, and kind of were already speaking the same language. Uh, it wasn't really a, a new thing so much as a, we're selling a different product, but doing things slightly different way, or sorry, doing things basically the same way. Um, Again, obviously, with the differences taken into account for selling a cloud SaaS solution being a little different than an on-prem, everything but cloud solution. Fantastic. And um, you then made your, I believe, your first steps into management with, uh, with Sumo Logic, Mike. I did. Yeah. Um, and to be you know, very transparent, that was one of the things that actually had me leaving BMC as well was... Mm. Uh, hitting a, a little bit of a a wall there mm. from my my career aspirations perspective that uh, just wasn't a good mix of uh, my expertise at the time or how I presented myself or something and the the sales leadership making that decision um, so at the end of the day being able to to go and kind of go in fresh. Uh, maybe not have some uh, preconceptions of myself from salespeople that had worked with me when I was 24, uh, which I, I think is one of the things that quite legitimately um, was a concern there. They remembered effectively college Mike, uh, their sales engineer that did something wrong a long time ago. Um, not what I had kind of grown into. So anyways, uh, Sumo gave me that opportunity. That was something uh, going into this environment. I'd had that discussion with, with Damon that that was one of my aspirations and, and something that I, mm. I thought I'd be really good at in kind of building that team, growing it. Didn't happen immediately, mm. but it was always one of those objectives. And I, I had a good team of people to, to grow with there and then got a, a good opportunity to, to really build out a team Mm. Um, not that long after. Yeah, fantastic. And would you advise individuals maybe in larger companies looking to make that next step? Do, do you think startups is the best way to move to management or does it depend? No. Um, <laughs> I, I probably would not recommend that as, <laughs> it's the, the fastest way uh, to, to get where you're going there. I think some of the larger orgs mm. are probably going to have a, a better new leader support and education network than, than a smaller org can really have. Mm. So I think the smaller the org, the better chance that you are learning more by your own trial and error yeah. and maybe your direct management chain. But there's not going to be a, 
leadership training program or, or anything like that, right? You're not going to learn how many one-on-ones am I supposed to do with people? There's stuff that you, you got to figure out on your own um, or learn from examples of, of your prior leadership that yeah. again, luckily I had, yeah. I had a lot of good examples to build my vision on. Yeah. But it, there was no class. Mm. Yeah. Um, That's interesting. And um, for individuals making that first step into management, be it with a startup or, or a larger organization or somewhere in the middle, um, what, what should that, pre-sales engineer making the move into management focus on what, what would you advise are the, the key skills to, to grow first? First, it's to make sure they're doing it for the right reason. I've seen people go into to pre-sales leadership that are doing it because they want to make more money. Yeah. And that is the worst reason to become an SE manager um, or a sales engineering leader of any sort. Um, it's, you know, may come with it in some regards, but the if you're just trying to do it because you want to make another uh, small bump in OTE, mm. it's um, it'll crush you. Um, you're you're no longer just dealing with with your prospects, with your sales uh, team and your sales assignment, but uh, all sorts of other people's dynamics and uh, again, really guiding people to be successful in that role. Um, also potentially stepping back from the technology a little bit. So if, if all you want to do is continue being excellent at the technology and solving the problems for your customers and you want to make more money, that's the discussion people should be having with their boss. Not, I want to be a manager um, if that's the case. But if people really get a lot out of turning people into experts themselves. So being able to take a less experienced person work with them, teach them the demo, teach them how to dig the value out of a discovery call, um, really understand that customer's problem, how to solve it in a proof of concept. Mm. Um, that's the stuff that people should be wanting to do if they want to go down this path. Yeah. Um, so almost a passion for sales engineering itself as opposed to purely the technology or the... the absolutely. And sales and personal interactions mm. that's so critical i've worked with i've had leaders across the spectrum uh, of my <laughs> career in in various forms mm. of people that never really related to me as an individual contributor that were my manager mm. um i think at ibm in three years i had five managers and i never met a single one in person wow um so that it's a good example of whenever, when I bring someone on, obviously I, I want to make sure I can interview them in person if, if at all possible. But as a um, first line manager, NESE that I hired, I'd either go to them or, or fly them where I was for that first couple days of onboarding to really start to build that relationship. Uh, hopefully you've done some of that already during the interview process. But uh, again, the people interaction is a big part of it. Um, because of all the different teams that we have to interact with and intersect with. And uh, again, ultimately we're, um, we're helping people make that right path, right? And not just helping a sales engineer make the right path, helping the sales reps, the RDs um, really understand the problems and kind of translating a little bit between them. 
how did you find that that part so actually having to now teach a lot of these principles around you know value selling problem solving um you know a lot of the things that you've obviously learned as part of the various playbooks that you've been part on you now obviously need to teach that how have you found that and how's how has that enhanced your understanding of those concepts? I'm actually going to throw this back to a, a BMC principle that I picked up there again, just because it's uh, where I got, I don't know, this aspect or this, this mindset. So we had a, a construct there that the evolution of a sales engineer was explain, demo, prove. So first you got to be able to explain the product, then you need to be able to demonstrate it, then you need to be able to prove that it works for the customer. Uh, seems relatively simple at the core. But one of the things I realized very early was until you could do a demo of the product, you couldn't really explain it well. And until you could prove the product worked in a POC, you can't really give a good demo because you're, you're going to be stuck on that script, right? Of if I click off the screen in this point, I don't know where I'm going. Um, I don't know how to get back. I don't know what it does. When you can prove it, when you know it at that level of technical depth, you can go back and, and really show somebody and go off script, tell them how it solves their problem. I'm going to now apply this on the other side of how does that work with uh, teaching people how to do the sales process. It's kind of like that. Um, I, I've seen people try to teach people how to do something that they haven't done enough of themselves. And it never clicks the same as talking to somebody that you know truly has done that already and is speaking from their experience. So um, being able to take that, uh, again, uh, experience having done a bunch of it, hopefully having a bunch of people not make the same mistakes that I made at some point, um, trying to get those stories in there as to if you do that, it's not likely to lead to success. Um, because of this, like, feel free to try it and fail for yourself if you want. Um, I think that's a big aspect that really helps guys get going a little bit faster. Yeah, great. And th there seems to be such a, obviously lots of uh, fascinating things to come from the Blade Logic story, but a, a culture of mentorship um, from a management style and probably mindset as well. Um, is that something you've taken into your your management style and, and benefited from yourself? Yeah. I, um, again, I had a fantastic experience with the sales engineering leaders that I, I consider friends to this day um, at Blade Logic, uh, both at a, a peer level as well as the people that were actually my managers. That I, if anything, maybe I'm bad at the typical manager employee relationship thing of there's just a person that works for you and they submit their reports and you get their work out of them. Um, I don't know. My, my managers always made a point to, again, uh, become friends, if you will. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe a, a little bit of a, a different aspect than maybe the more cutthroat sales side of, uh, of an org, but um Two of, two of my SE managers were at my wedding. Um, <laughs> so uh, just a, a good example there. I, I try to make sure that I am interacting and, and really connecting at that personal level. Mm. If you don't know what makes someone that works for you tick and what drives them to be successful, 
and what they need to be successful, I don't see how you can make them successful. Mm. So all that goes into actually understanding them at a, a personal level. And some of that is them understanding you at a personal level. Um, it's not a, a one-way door. Mm. Mm. Great. So uh, I suppose um, just going back to more of the um, kind of the practical side and the client interaction side, I know that obviously pre-sales um, – it is changing, right? And I suppose I just want to ask your, your opinion on on that. We are starting to see more defined functions within pre and post sales. We're seeing more emphasis on customer success, value engineering, um, you know, pre-sales. Do, do you think that pre-sales is becoming more siloed in, in your opinion? Or, or, or do you think that it's... Um, it, or, or, you know, or, or does it really vary from, from, from kind of company to company? Company to company, it's going to vary. So obviously very dependent on the size. The smaller the company, the more hats each person's going to wear. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, the value side is one of those first kind of compatible hats of being able to do things like a business value assessment, something that we did, um, you know, at Blade Logic through the BMC side of, of understanding how functionality actually impacts the customer. Um, that's one that, that tends to be very compatible with sales engineering because you have to understand the technical problems to get to the value um, or the technical cost uh, on the other side of it as well. Um, customer success, the, the post-sales side of it, I've never been a part of an org where sales engineering disappeared after the sale and never wanted to talk to the customer again. I'm glad I've never been in an org like that. I, I think they exist, um, but again, have not ever been the case. Your your current customer is only going to be a larger current customer if they're a happy current customer, and you won't know if they're happy and be able to make them happy if you don't talk to them. So mm-hmm. uh, again, we don't disappear after the sale here. We didn't to Blade Logic. Um, actually, still very uh, frequently talk to some of the customers I worked with ten years ago uh, at, at Blade Logic. So similar regard there. So I know that the three wides is obviously a key element of your, your playbook as well. So just tell us a little bit about how that kind of ties in. Yeah. So on the sales engineering side, you know, as you mentioned, there's uh, in a smaller org, possibly lots of hats and lots of things that the team may be doing and maybe spending their time doing. There's obviously a finite number of hours in the day and week to get stuff done that you can stretch people a little bit beyond that finite number. But, uh, (laughs) only to a certain extent. So part of that, obviously, qualification becomes key. Uh, There's all sorts of ways, obviously, to to qualify the deal of which I uh, obviously had uh, the medic side of it as my first experience in sales. So I didn't know that there was another method (laughs) until very, very much later uh, in my, my sales career, but really doing that qualification of why, uh, again, why buy anything? Why buy the product you're selling and why buy it now? Um, Those are the three simple breakdowns that if you can't answer the three whys, uh, and again, this is something that I absolutely learned from, um, you know, McMahon um, leading discussions and, and really understanding how he was qualifying deals. Uh, those would be some of the, the questions out of his mouth uh, very immediately on things. Um, if you can't answer those three things, or at least a, a good chunk of them on, a, on an opportunity, 
need to be careful spending too much time working on that opportunity. Um, you can only hunt uphill so long uh, before you, you run out of steam there. So it's much better to spend your time working on the stuff that is qualified. They do have a problem. Um, if they don't have a problem, why are you talking to them? Um, you can't make a problem for a customer. You shouldn't make a problem for a customer. <laughs> uh, you should be finding something that is their problem, finding value to do it, uh, and then ultimately, um, you know, helping them solve it. Very good advice. I suppose in terms of kind of general advice to our viewers and our listeners that are aspiring to kind of grow their career, what's the best advice that you could give in a more broader kind of general um, term? So it's not don't say no um, to doing stuff, uh, even if it's if it's outside of your role, because there there are things. It's actually something I've been trying to do better at is is say no more to things. <laughs> um, but making sure that everybody, making sure that you are part of the solution to whatever the problem is. Um, again, in a smaller org, it's going to be more things that that you have to do, but being that person that's known as a go-to as a problem solver. I've never seen a problem solver not be missed if they left an org or uh, obviously from a, a leadership level, the, the all purpose problem solver is going to have a, a lot less pushback in a room. If, if you're trying to get him a, a promotion or a raise or her uh, promotion or a raise that at the end of the day, just being able to uh, again, be compatible with people and focusing on making sure that you are adding that value. Um, seems silly and basic, but um, you want to be the person people go to for things. Um, or it's also possible that's just part of my personality that's baked in uh, to me. But I've, I've seen the people that, again, people look for in an org tend to obviously rise higher than the people that nobody's really sure what they do. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. Uh, as a final question, um, we ask as part of the pre-sale series, what technology or area of innovation do you think is going to have the biggest impact on business over the next decade? I think from a, a technology perspective, a lot of the things that are going on in the machine learning aspects are likely to have a big change in how things are done. Um, the hardest part about machine learning is actually operationalizing it. So that'll be a interesting thing to see how that evolves. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I definitely see that aspect. Uh, the, uh, again, just the, the deep learning capabilities that people can do with a video card now are a little ridiculous. Um, so seeing that grow and having more software that figures out kind of your problem or figures out what it's doing itself instead of somebody telling it what to do. Um, I think I see that as kind of a, a general flow here, um, especially with just all the massive amounts of data that are being generated. Mm. Mm. Great. Well, 
I think it's probably a good time for us to, to really kind of summarize on what we've heard today. And first of all, just want to start off by saying a, a big thank you. Um, but um, I suppose in terms of, we've obviously heard some really, really interesting things uh, during this, uh, this, this session today. But I think what's really stuck out at me in particular is the fact that you're in an industry where finding value is, is so key. And what I found fascinating today was that it wasn't until you reflected on what you were doing perhaps as a child working in that computer store where you had to fix problems. And a lot of the time you were fixing problems that people didn't really understand what they needed fixing. And I think that that whole mindset is something which has really completely transcended everything that you you've kind of gone on to achieve and i think that that mindset of don't just ask answer questions solve problems and by solving the problems and attaching yourself to that value is ultimately what has really helped you continue to grow and it will continue to help you grow in every aspect of the job that you do so um i suppose as a, as a bit of a summary um you know yeah, I just want to say a big thank you. It's been a great speaking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to uh, to, to speak with us today. And uh, we've really thoroughly enjoyed talking with you. And I'm sure our listeners and our viewers have have, have done so too. Excellent. Thank you guys very much for your time. I hope, uh, hope I was able to add something to, to somebody's day that uh, is watching this later. Yeah, thank you so much, Mike. It's been... Um extremely informative, insightful, and brilliant to talk to you. Thank you. Great. So for our listeners and our viewers, we hope you've enjoyed today's session. Please remember to subscribe. There's lots and lots of content available on our blog page. So please do check out so soap.com forward slash blog. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. Please do get in touch with us. Uh, and uh, we hope that you join us for another, another uh, session soon. Thank you very much. 